0: Our parable today needs some explanation. Who are the various figures at play here? The king is God the Father, and of course, the son for which the wedding feast is prepared is God the Son. It's Jesus Christ himself. Those who were sent originally, those servants who called those invited to the feast, were the prophets, and those who were originally invited to the feast were the Jews. Remember, Jesus is giving this parable once again to the chief priests and elders of the people. These are the ones who hold power in Jerusalem. They want to keep the status quo, hold on to their power, and continue to direct things as they wish. Who is the identity, then, of the ones who are invited afterwards in the byroads? And who are the soldiers who come to destroy the city of those who murdered the servants to invite the guests to the wedding feast. First, the Jews, having rejected Christ himself, rejected the gospel and put Jesus to death along with the Roman soldiers, those are the ones who have killed the servants sent to invite the people to the wedding banquet. The murderers are then put to death by other soldiers, and the city is destroyed. What city are we talking about here? This is the city of Jerusalem, which, having killed the long awaited Messiah, would be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. That's the meaning behind this parable that Jesus is giving. The question there's really two questions I want to focus on today. The first question is why is there such a terrible response and what sort of invitation is this that leads people to kill servants sent to invite someone to the wedding feast? It would be crazy if someone went to your door and someone went to someone's door and asked them to come to a wedding banquet and the response was to kill the servant. That makes no sense to us. But in the light of the gospel, what the nature of this wedding feast is, the invitation is not merely to a four-hour reception filled with joy and mirth and drink and choice foods. Rather, it's eternity. What are the circumstances that lead us to refuse such an invitation? It simply is those things in our life that we can't let go of the things that we don't want to let God take full control of. These chief priests and elders who are in the city of Jerusalem, they don't want to lose their power. They're not willing to come and receive this invitation. The threat of losing control is so much for these people that they will actually kill Christ himself. It's not just a correction leveled at the chief priests, and the elders, but an opportunity for us to do some soul-searching. What are the areas of life that we have held on to for control? What are the things we're not willing God to allow God to come into our lives and to change? In small moments, this can be very manifest. Like a little child engrossed in a video game or something of the sort, Mom says, it's time for dinner. And, of course, the response of the child is, just give me five more minutes. Much like those who are invited but rather go to their farm or to their homestead to continue what they were doing, those little distractions. In those little moments where you have an invitation to pray... We need to capitalize on those things. Those invitations by God Himself to draw us more deeply into prayer are great ways to practice saying yes to the invitation of God. Now, perhaps most perplexing is a question that's hidden within this parable. We're told about a wedding feast, and we know who the bridegroom is, we know it's Christ Himself, but the bride is never identified. It's a mystery person. All we have are the bridegroom, the father, the guests, the servants, those who say no, the Gentiles who end up coming into the church for this wedding feast. But who, who is the bride? It seems pretty important for a wedding feast. And of course, the bride is the church. The very guests who were invited are the bride. It's all of us called to this heavenly banquet to participate forever in this union of God with man. What's striking to me is that Jesus dying on a cross would cover all of our sins. It did. It paid the debt for all of our sins. And yet, that doesn't necessitate him to give us the great gift of the Eucharist. Whenever we come to this altar and receive the Eucharist, it is a sacrament that is the unity of the bride and the bridegroom. It is the faithful, the people of God, receiving Christ and a union that's similar to marriage that will be brought to perfection in heaven, this union of Christ with his church. However, it's not necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. We do not need the Eucharist in order for our sins to be forgiven. That debt was paid on the cross. So it is a point of reflection for us to understand what incredible love it is that God has for us to give us the Eucharist. It's something over and beyond the great mercy of forgiving our sins by sending his son to die on a cross. It's something even more than that. It's simply not necessary It means we're called to something more. It means God is trying to give us a greater gift. From a great author in the 1800s, why this stupendous, substantial union of Christ with man in the Eucharist if he wished to do no more than offer satisfaction for our sins or merit God's assistance for us? Why the Eucharist unless... Why the Eucharist, if Christ does not propose to pour out upon us, along with his substance, his own divine life? This is more than just having our sins forgiven. This is God giving us his very life, receiving divine life. This is what the wedding feast is about and what the Eucharist is about. It far surpasses any of our imaginations. So who is this interesting man who has no wedding garment, who appears at this feast? It's simply the person who responded to the invitation, but rather than keep that radiant baptismal garment clean and pure, has sullied it with other things, and he is not prepared to be in the heavenly banquet It means that our status as Christians, it can be lost if we do not allow God to transform us for us to truly put on Jesus Christ in all the radiant splendor of that wedding garment. The great gift of the Eucharist so far surpasses our wildest expectations. Not only are we put in right relation with God, Not only are our sins forgiven, but rather he gives us the great gift of the Eucharist to pour out his own divine life on us, to burn away all of our impurities and to transform us into himself. The Church Fathers, St. Irenaeus and others, I believe, put it best when they described the great gift of the Eucharist and the Incarnation. They simply say that God became man that man might become God.